Christine Lagarde, Janet Yellen, and Stephanie Kilton are among the world's best-known political economists. Lagarde was France's Minister of Finance, Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund, and is President of the European Central Bank, all firsts for a lady. Yellen was America's Chair of the Federal Reserve and is Presumptive Nominee for U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, each a first for a lady. Kelton was advisor to the Bernie Sanders 2016 presidential campaign, is a best-selling author, and is the most famous evangelist for modern monetary theory. And now these remarkable three are in positions of power and influence to guide the world out of socioeconomic depression. It echoes the 1999 cover of Time magazine, featuring three men, Robert Rubin, Alan Greenspan, and Larry Summers, with the agitated headline, The Committee to Save the World. Alas, this 38th episode of Making Sense continues the long tradition of unease found in the Western canon regarding the female triumvirate. Yes, of course, the graces, Aglaia, Euphrosyne, and Thalea, were lovely. But there was the rumor about them spending so much time in the underworld. No need to comment on the harpies, a triad of vengeful winged sisters, and who can forget the witches of Eastwick? Susan Sarandon, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Cher? They put your podcaster off cherries for the rest of the 80s. But it is Shakespeare who provides us the incomparable trio, the Weird Sisters. Better understood today as Wayward or Weard, they were the Anglo-Saxon fates responsible for divination and predictions, what we call economics in modern day. That don't take this podcaster's word for it. Listen to the Bard. Macbeth, Act 4, Scene 1 Round about the cauldron go, in the poison policies throw. Media that report narrative, days and nights as quantitative, sweat inflation running hot. Boil thou first in the charmed pot. Double, double, toil and trouble. Fire, burn, and cauldron bubble. Soul of financial journalist, in the cauldron boil and mist. UBI of newt and bank reserves. Wool of bat and control of curves. Adder's fork and Janet's QE. Lizard's leg and Kelton's MMT. For a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth boil and bubble. Zerp, nerp, toil and trouble. Economy burn and markets bubble. Former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen is now nominated to be the next U.S. Treasury Secretary. What was her tenure all about back at the Federal Reserve? We're going to ask Jeff Snyder, Head of Global Research at Alhambra Investments, to help us understand what she was doing during her time there. My name is Emil Kalinowski. This is a Making Sense Eurodollar University production. Jeff, let's go back a few years. In December of 2016, she told the University of Baltimore graduates that they were entering, quote, the strongest job market in nearly a decade. Two years later, as her term was expiring, she did an exit interview with CBS News, and she noted, quote, the labor market has become stronger. I believe that since I've become chair 
several million jobs have been created, something on the order of 10 million. So these are all true statements, Jeff, and uh, yet you open your recent blog post with a quote from the former governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, that puts the whole decade since 2008 into question. Why did you do that? Yeah, I think there's a big, you know, people have a grave misconception, and it's an understandable one about how, you know, what, what's going on in any economic system. And, the, and it's really, it's, it's a positive numbers versus negative numbers. Negative numbers are easy, right? I mean, when you see a negative number on GDP or labor market or whatever the economic account might be, you know what that means. That's recession. That's bad. That's awful. That's the stuff we want to avoid. And so then when we see positive numbers, we think, well, it's a positive number. It must be recovery. The economy is moving forward. It's progressing, especially when those positive numbers lead to record high absolute, number, absolute amounts. And so it sounds like it's an either or situation. Either the economy's negative numbers recession or it's recovering and, doing, and, and, uh, uh, and growing again. It's moving forward. It's progressing. Therefore, you know, policymakers and authorities must be doing a good job. It's, it's a binary option that it's a false choice. And the reason that we think about it that way is because up until the 2008 global financial crisis and the, the so-called Great Recession, that's what it had always been. When you, should, when you saw uh, periods of recession, you got the negative numbers. As soon as they flipped over into positive, recovery. Everybody could relax and say, okay, the recovery's here. The economy is going to go right back to where it was because the business cycle meant only a temporary deviation in the overall system. You, you have a temporary, you have a shock, you have a temporary deviation, you have a, a setback, a downturn, a contraction, and you get right back to uh, where you would have been had you never had a recession. And so end of negative numbers into positive numbers, recovery or recession into recovery was a very simple thing. As we know, and as what Mervyn King, the former, uh, former head of the Bank of England said, no, this, this, there's something different about this one. Yes, we're seeing positive numbers, and we're seeing sustained positive numbers. We're not seeing the reappearance of negative numbers, but this is really, really a different thing. And so as you pointed out, Emil, what Janet Yellen said in, in her, at her exit interview was absolutely technically true, but it was misleading, and it was intentionally misleading. That's right. It was technically true, but it wasn't, it violated the spirit of what she was saying because of our implicit assumptions. And we'll get to that. Let me quote a few lines very recently at the end of November from the Financial Times. Now, this is an opinion piece, but I think it's representative of the view people have of Janet Yellen. Quote, oh, and this is, by the way, this is from Reina Forhuar, Forhuar. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Ms. Reina. Here it is. Quote, it is nearly impossible in this politically polarized moment to find a treasury secretary that everyone can love. But kudos to Joe Biden because the U.S. president-elect has done just that by picking Janet Yellen, the former Federal Reserve chair, for the job. An even-keeled, data-driven, low-ego leader. She enjoys the trust of progressives and many conservatives, too. She is lauded by economists of all stripes, from Joseph Stiglitz to Kenneth Rogoff. This will serve her well in Washington. What's wrong with that, Jeff? And, you know, I mean, 
there's nothing wrong with somebody being even killed and data driven and all those kinds of things. I think what she's really saying here and what the, the common consensus of Janet Yellen's period at the Federal Reserve was she didn't make any major errors. You know, Ben Bernanke, we could say, okay, we, a lot of people still re- admire the guy. A lot of people still support the guy, but you know, he's got that whole financial crisis on his resume. It's right there smack in the middle of his first term. Jay Powell, on the other hand, you know, you could say the same thing about him. He's got quite a big errors. I mean, not just this year, but how about 2018 when he got, uh, when he went off on his aggressive uh, uh, hyper, um, hyper uh, rate cuts and inflationary and all that other stuff, you know, his hawkish stance that, that really blew up in his face. Janet Yellen had the very good luck of coming in between those two guys and her tenure which wasn't all that great, but at least it didn't have any of the same major errors that the other that her predecessor had and her successor had. And so it's easy to sit back and say, well, Yellen may be the best of the bunch. But again, we're reducing our standards. We're picking from a very sorry lot and saying, oh, you know, what's the least worst? That's really what we're talking about in terms of Yellen as well as economy. That's what she was actually saying when you pointed out what she was talking about for that for her interview. What she's saying is, well, this is, you know, it wasn't bad. It wasn't worse. That's exactly right. She said this is the best jobs market in the, in the last decade. Yeah, but the last decade was awful. Just like over here, she is lauded by economists of all stripes. Yeah, but the problem is economists. That's the problem. And Jeff, so yeah, you... Exactly. Right. It's, it's, it's when we pick, when your, your list is so narrowed down and that's all you have to pick from, then yeah, maybe she's the best of the worst law. I mean, it's it's not like we're we're giving any kind of alternative here. It's just the same. What is the best of the same group that has been in charge and let things go awry all this time? What is the what is the least worst option we can have right now? So you introduce us to her in your November thirtieth blog post at Alhambra Investments, viewers. If you want to read it, you can. It's called "Meet the Same New Boss." And you introduce us by reviewing what you wrote in 2013, because then she was being added to the federal as you know head of the Federal Reserve chair, and uh, you quoted that in 2005 she saw it coming. No, not Pennywise, the mortgage crisis. That's pretty good. And you you offer a quote here of of what she said. Tell us a little bit about that moment from 2005 when she foresaw the mortgage crisis? Well, it sounded like she maybe foresaw the mortgage crisis, but what she did, what she really did was mistake it in the same way that Ben Bernanke and every other economist had it at the same time. And that's, that's kind of the point here is that, you know, Ben Bernanke's track record, especially during that time period, maybe among the worst, I would say Bill Dudley's even worse, but you know, Ben Bernanke doesn't have a great track record of predicting in, in, in uh, his analysis of what the economy was doing at that time. What people may not know, because at the time Janet Yellen wasn't well known, her track record is about on par with Ben Bernanke's. Now it sounded like you know there was a lot of people who made it, uh, made a, a, some noise about this comment, and it sounded like she was saying, "Oh my God, we're in the housing bubble," but that's not what she was saying at all. She noticed that there were some imbalances, but she thought, like Bernanke did, these are easily managed. The Federal Reserve has the tools. The Federal Reserve can do what it wants. We can manage any kind of setback. So, yeah, maybe there's some frothiness in housing. There's a little excessive uh, credit and risk-taking and credit growth and those kinds of things. But she was not really worried about it. 
Let me read what she wrote in, or said in 2005. Quote, certainly analyses do indicate that house prices are abnormally high. That sounds good. That there is a bubble element. Good. Even accounting for factors that would support high house prices, such as low mortgage interest rates. So a reversal is a, certainly a possibility. Moreover, moreover, even the portion of house prices that is explained by low mortgages, mortgage rates is at risk. Sounds great. Now I'm going to fast forward when she's speaking at the FOMC, and this is December 06. Tell us what the difference is between these two quotes. Quote, again from Yellen, finally, the gap between housing prices and fundamentals may not be as large as some calculations suggest because real long-term interest rates have fallen quite a bit recently, raising the fundamental value of housing. <laughs> the fundamental value, right? I mean, that's a, that's a categorical error. That's not an error of omission. That's not an error of, you know, by accident. That's a categorical error. And as you're pointing out, December of 2006 was a very, very important period in the pre-crisis period, the end of the pre-crisis era, because at that time, you had already indications in the marketplace that this thing was going down. Eurodollar futures curve had inverted already in December of 2006, which, as I've documented over the years, the FOMC completely ignored right on into the crisis. So the market was already warning Yellen, Bernanke, and all those other people, hey, there's something really bad here. You need to pay attention to it. It's not the fundamentals of housing are positive because you're – Ridiculous calculations for real interest rates have fallen, which is another topic we got, need to talk about, you know, uh, further, further what's going on right now. But, you know, they make the same mistakes over and over again. They ignore the, what the market data is telling them so that they go back to their GSGE models, which, by the way, as I showed in that 2013 piece, Janet Yellen's expectations in 2007 were that 2008 might be a little bit uncomfortable, but not really all that bad because she made this categorical error about what was really going on. As you pointed out, Emil, December 2006 should have been, especially given what she had just said about imbalances and housing and bubbles and all that stuff, it was that 2006, right at the end, that was the time when they should have put everything together and said, holy crap, we got a huge problem on our hands. You just referenced May 2007, and for those paying attention, that's about two months just before it was over. The era would be over the one that we understood as uh, the post-World War II monetary order. Uh, and then it malfunctioned in August. And I guess that's not as bad as Mr. Bill Dudley, who was said everything was in order two days before the monetary order broke on August 9th. But let me read, and tell me if I'm being unfair, let me, let me read what she said in May of 2007. The key factors shaping the long-term outlook include continued fallout from the housing sector with housing wealth projected to be roughly flat through 2008. Given the reduced impetus for housing wealth, household spending should advance at a more moderate pace going forward than over the past few years. Yeah, right. No big deal. Yes, the housing market got itself into a bubble. No big deal. And the reason she thought that, and this is where she gets into the same category as Bernanke and all the rest, was because, number one, their models all told them that a housing shock, even a, a severe one, wouldn't be a severe shock at all. And secondly, their models also – remember, Janet Yellen, data-driven, and data means models. Their models all told them in 2008, hey, you know, the Federal Reserve's got this printing 
press. It's got tremendous power. There's all this monetary policy capability, and all we need to do is use it. So they believed housing was a manageable problem, which isn't, you know, in, in one sense, that's, that was true too, technically true, because what happened in 2007, 2008 was not a housing problem specifically. It was a monetary problem. So Janet Yellen had made all the same mistakes as everyone else did and said, look, this is, yeah, the housing market got itself into a little bit of trouble, but it's nothing we can't handle because she didn't realize it was a global monetary issue. When we hear data-driven, we implicitly connect market-driven, but that's not the case, actually. And you mentioned earlier there was a very big market indication, the euro-dollar futures curve inverted in December 2006. This is Las Vegas-sized signs, neon lights flashing, warning. It happened in June of 2018, warning. But would Yellen be looking to the markets? You reference a New York Times article which says that no, in fact, Miss Yellen one of the reasons that maybe she gained favor with President Obama over Larry Summers was because she was more reticent to look to the market. So let's see here if I can quote this. So in August of 2013, Menzi Chin, an economist and professor of public affairs at the University of Wisconsin, said that both Larry Summers and Janet Yellen were, quote, at the forefront of research undermining the ideas that markets were self-correcting. And you end the article noting that Professor Chin nevertheless singled out Yellen for the fact that she showed an even clearer pattern of viewing markets as inherently flawed. Yeah, and they, they, they look at especially bond market interest rates, those kinds of things as you know, they've got it all wrong. We've got it all right. And so we, as you go back to the point of data driven, what does that mean for Janet Yellen? Her data is her econometric models, which tell her how she believes the world is progressing. And therefore, market signals like euro dollar futures or the even just a simple yield curve time and time again, her like all her contemporaries and all her uh, other central bankers uh, like her. They ignore these signals at their own peril, not just their own peril, but our peril. And that's really the point we're trying to make here is that, you know, even though Janet Yellen's tenure from, uh, what was it, 2012 to 2000, no, uh, 2014 to 2018, you know, her four-year her four-year period wasn't filled with egregious errors, that didn't mean it was error-free. They're mm -hmm. just not as easy to see. And that's really the point we're making here is that Yellen isn't really that different from all of her predecessors in that, except in that she didn't have all of these major crises on her record. But let's face it, what we call around here Euro dollar number three, the third global dollar shortage in the series, wasn't as bad in the United States as it had been for Ben Bernanke in Euro dollar number one or Jay Powell in Euro dollar number four, but it was really, really bad for the rest of the world. And in fact, it had knocked Janet Yellen off her hawkish schedule, right? Because Yellen's Fed said in 2014, this QE stuff is starting to work, best jobs market in decades, things are really going, we're going well, we expect inflation, we expect everything else. Then all of a sudden, in, late, in the middle of 2014, oil prices tank. Interest rates are falling, the yield curve, all these other signals, euro dollar futures prices are going through the roof. All of these things that are telling her that's a euro dollar number three. And what does she do? She ignores those signals. She ignores the actual data from markets and says, no, our models say things are going well. 
except what ends up happening in 2015. It was supposed to be the start of the rate hikes that we saw in 2018. Instead, they did one rate hike in December of 2015 and then put it off for an entire year because that was a big error. It wasn't an egregious error that everybody understands implicitly of what it was, but it was another error of the same kind that everyone else in her shoes had made. And so as she moves over now to possibly to the Treasury Department, she may not be objectionable in the way, same way that others are, but that doesn't mean that she's actually good at possibly what her job is, especially when you connect what she's supposed to do at the Federal Reserve to the global dollar system, right? That's what we really care about. That's what the Federal Reserve is supposed to care about. That's what the Treasury is supposed to care about. And yet Janet Yellen's entire tenure, going way back before she was Federal Reserve chairman, says she has no idea what's really going on. You just said it was a global dollar system. And previously you were talking about how she didn't make as many mistakes as her contemporaries. And that means we need to look beyond the United States to understand the whole picture. So in part two of episode 38, we're going to look to Europe to a contemporary of Janet Yellen's. And we're going to end part two by discussing Orwell and Orwellian speak. Christine Lagarde is the head of the European Central Bank right now, and she's taking the ECB out of their comfort zone, at least according to a recent headline by The Economist. And indeed she is. She's recently said that stable coins pose serious risks. She's warned against vaccine optimism. She said users cannot rely on crypto assets maintaining a stable value because they're volatile, speculative, and not, do not fulfill all the functions of money. But perhaps most interestingly for our discussion, she said, quote, the European Central Bank can neither go bankrupt nor run out of money, even if it were to suffer losses on the multi-trillion euro pile of bonds bought under its stimulus programs. And that's where we're going to turn to, the multi-trillion euro bond stimulus, question mark? Yeah, and that's again, it's one of those technically true, but ultimately, is it meaningless or is it misleading? I mean, it's not exactly what she's stating, and that's true. I mean, look, if the if the if uh, if the ECB, like the Federal Reserve or any central bank, loses on you know the prices that pay and credit risk and defaults and these kinds of things and the bonds and the assets that it owns, it's absolutely true. The central bank doesn't go out of business, but the, what does it actually print money for those bonds or does it just create its own liabilities? Unlike some other real world businesses, but not unlike real world banks who have the same sort of capacities to create their own liabilities at times under certain conditions, but they actually do create and, and uh, do uh, that's what actually creates the money in the monetary system. So the central bank in some ways is kind of like that, except what it creates as a liability to offset its losses may not be as useful and as meaningful as she projects it to be. Part one, part two, and part three, I think there's going to be a theme of technically true, but violating the spirit and implicit assumptions that we all make based on our regular day-to-day -day lives. Let's get back to here to part two. So the article in question is, saving jobs won't save us from jobs. That was posted at Alhambra Investments blog on December 1st. But we don't want to start out talking about December 1st. We want to talk about September of 2019, Jeff, which I nominate as the worst month for central bankers in 10 years. Why? Well, in the United States, 
we had the whole repurchase agreement market seize up and repurchase agreement market is where banks get their short-term funding. That put egg on the faces of the Federal Reserve and we were not going to get into it. But that same month, something happened across the pond in Atlantic, in, across, across that body of water between America and, and Europe. I don't know what it's called these days anyhow. Jeff, what happened in Europe in September of 2019? Well, Europe had been on this, again, like Jay Powell in the U.S., Europe had been prior on this uh, projecting that the economy was going to accelerate into recovery. There'd be inflation. Mario Draghi, who had been Christine Lagarde's successor, was going to walk off into the sunset, ending QE and having this, his big parade and retirement celebrations all full of economic completion. We made it. We finally got a recovery long last. Well, September 2019 rolls around, and it was obvious by then, again, data-driven bond market signals, not DSGE models. It was obvious by September 2019 that things were going really awry, especially in Europe. Europe, probably more than any place else, had been the epicenter of this Eurodollar number four disruption, which left it on the, if not on the precipice, maybe on the precipice of recession, but in some, some accounts and in some countries, it was already in recession by September of 2019. And so Mario Draghi, rather than ending his tenure on a you know, success story, winding down QE, taking the ECB, you know, taking a step back with the ECB and letting the economy take over as it was supposed to, instead they restarted QE in 2019. So his last act leading into Christine Lagarde's first, uh, first initial days of tenure was to rerun QE all over again. Which, of course was super embarrassing and a complete policy 180. They, they were not expecting to do this, at least publicly. And since then, they have, as these quotes that I uh, cited earlier, they have printed a lot of money, Jeff, a lot. And they've got so many of these programs. And you, you referenced a few of them. And I just want to talk about them just for a second, just so people understand, because I think most of our audience is in the United States, so they're familiar with QE. But in Europe, they're called by a different name, but they might just be the same thing. So there's this current account of 2.91 trillion euros. What's in the current account versus what is in the deposit account, which is only 0.59 trillion euros? Well, it's really a distinction without a difference, except that the, uh, the way the ECB controls interest rates or believes it controls short-term money rates in Europe uh, it uses a corridor approach. And so the deposit account is a special account that banks can use and access for uh, reserves that uh, in in prior periods actually paid out an interest rate. So that was basically their IOER type of deal. But ever since 2014, of course, the deposit account has been set at a negative interest rate, which is supposed to disincentivize banks from using it. Yet, as we've seen since 2014 in the arrival of negative interest rates, Banks don't really care. They'll pay the penalty to hold the most liquid assets anyway, because for as far as a bank is concerned, bank reserves are nothing more than a, a, an asset choice for their balance sheet and a liquid asset choice that doesn't come with all sorts of risks and perils that might be attached with riskier forms of credit and lending. So what the banking system has done in the deposit account is say, look, we're just going to hold reserves with the ECB. It doesn't matter what they penalize us. We're just going to do that. And the current account is simply, you know, sort of the same byproduct of bank reserves as in the Federal Reserve setup. It's what, you know, when the, when the ECB buys a security from, a, from a, a money dealer in Europe, 
it swaps that asset for these reserves that go into the current account. So it's really together the deposit account and the current account are a form of bank reserves in the European system. And so we could call that QE just under different names. Is that right? Yeah, QE is really, it's, it's large-scale asset purchases. That's really what QE is. And lar- you know, large-scale asset purchases just means the central bank is going to expand its balance sheet by purchasing assets because that's how a central bank does expand its balance sheet. And by purchasing assets, the remainder on the central bank's liability side, which we just talked about, are these bank reserves. So as long as those, obser- those reserves aren't sterilized or absorbed in some other fashion, usually by a, a government action, then what's left over is these excess reserves go into the banking system books. But the banking system doesn't use them or view them as money. They're simply just another form of asset to hold. And in this case, they're very liquid and, and uh, un, you know, le- uh, low risk, risk-free assets. So that's how they're being used in these situations. And again, as we just said, to leave their money in the deposit account or to leave the res- these reserves in the deposit account, even though it's, they're being charged 40 basis points at the lowest tier. I like that name, large-scale asset purchase program. That makes more sense than quantitative easing. And so we've got about two. Yeah, but right. I mean, it doesn't convey the ter- what the you know the term quantitative easing is supposed to convey a specific meaning. Quantitative easing. It's supposed to convey money printing. That's the easing, and then quantitative is again Janet Yellen, data-driven science. It's it's mathematics. We're, 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 we've figured out ahead of time the exact right amount of easing in order to achieve our goals. So it's, you know, LSAP or a large-scale asset purchase, that's technically what happens. But again, we're, we're misleading by using the term quantitative easing because as we know throughout history, throughout any place this stuff is tried, it obviously can't have been quantitative, right? If you have to do it more than once, it wasn't the right quantity, right? That's, I mean, that's simple stuff. And then once you realize it's not the right quantity, you start asking questions. Well, is this actually easing? Are bank reserves actually money? Is this really nothing more than an asset swap? And so, you know, quantitative easing, LSAPs, these are not really the same thing, but these economists like to be tricky about how they perceive or how they portray what they're doing as well as the results of what they're doing. And so, but it seems like that's pretty targeted. They're not just going out there willy nilly and just buying anything they see. They've, they've got a, corporate sector purchase program, a public sector purchase program, asset-backed sector securities purchase program, third covered bonds, and then recently they've started kind of similar uh, of the uh, the corona purchases, the pandemic emergency purchases. Yeah, the so, exactly. So it seems targeted. It seems like they are no see to me it's not i mean look i mean the fact that yeah. you first you covered bond purchase program number three right right <laughs> yeah not, i didn't mention that part one. yeah no it, it's it's a scattershot approach and that's really it, mm-hmm. and again that's why they hide this stuff and, and just call it quantitative easing because quantitative easing is what they want the public to think of it when you look at all these individual programs and how they actually uh, conduct the purchases it's a shotgun approach it's not a it's not quiet quantitative at all it's not scientific at all it's not that driven at all they're basically just throwing crap against the wall and hoping something sticks. That's the opposite of the, the, the message they're trying to portray. And that's really the common thread in all of these things is that they don't really know what the hell they're doing. They're just doing a bunch of stuff and hoping people believe in it. And that's why it never works. As you pointed out, Emil, this year the ECB, like every other central bank, has been extremely busy. Busy in a way it has never been busy before. The PEPP 
in addition to the PSPP, these two different QEs that are running simultaneously have, I mean, the, the amount of bank reserves in Europe have gone through the roof. I think combined the deposit and uh, the deposit and the current account are somewhere close to three and a half trillion, mm-hmm. which is an immense amount of bank reserves. And it sounds like, oh my God, look at all this money printing. It's massive amounts of money printing. And yet, as we've talked about before, inflation in Europe is now negative again. Uh, the core inflation rate is the lowest it's been on record. There's no evidence that this money printing stuff is actually money printing because it's not what central bankers tell you they're doing or tell you how they're doing. It's what actually happens. That Where is the data? Where is the data that says this stuff actually works? That's right. The core inflation rate was reported to be 0.2% year over year, but not just in November. It was also the case in October and September. And as you mentioned, that's the record low, at least for this data set that only goes back to 1997. But for some context, the previous pre-corona low was 0.6. So we're at one third, despite so much more money printing, which suggests that should then translate to inflation. Jeff, Would the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, agree with you that the ECB and the Fed and the other central banks will not return the economy to health? Yeah, I think, well, again, they're going to say it a little differently, right? They're not going to say that the Fed or the ECB or the Bank of Japan or People's Bank of China aren't being effective. What they're saying is they're being very effective. But that won't matter. <laughs> Didn't like, look are we like splitting it. hairs here? Yeah, well, they put out a chart that we're going to talk about it. It doesn't yeah, seem they, like they're being effective. Again, their models, their data says that monetary policy and fiscal, especially in combination with fiscal policy, radical fiscal spending and fiscal aid, these things are really good things and they're really effective. But yet, what we see is that economies are not recovering, at least in you know the, the ter- using the term recovery as it's supposed to be, which means, as we started out before, a recession is a temporary deviation. When it's over with, you get a recovery that puts you back where you would have been had the recession never happened. That's not what we're seeing now, just like it's, it's not what we saw after 2008. We have an economic dislocation, a permanent shock, you know, unit roots, those things we don't allow in econometrics. We see a permanent shock, and what the OECD is saying is that, yeah, there's a permanent shock here, and that global output is going to remain less than its prior trend for years and years and years, maybe ever. We may never get back to trend, but data-driven in the economics, in the, in the sense of economics and econometrics, they're saying, well, the ECB must have been tremendously helpful. It's not their fault. They're saving jobs. So in other words, it would have been even worse if we hadn't had all of this quote-unquote stimulus. So monetary policy's effectiveness is judged by the fact that, or the counterfactual that you can't prove, that it must have been worse if they hadn't done anything. Here's a quote from their most recent, I believe it's the Economic Outlook. Quote, output is projected to remain around 5% below crisis expectations in many countries in 2022, raising the specter of substantial permanent costs from the pandemic. They use the word scarring. I believe their head economist used it in one of, in his uh, quote regarding the, uh, the report. And so, but then they also, you know what they do, Jeff, they provide kind of uh, three scenarios, uh, the baseline, and then a good scenario, and then a bad scenario. 
I think the bad scenario was uh, if there isn't any fiscal relief, that it will be even worse than the 5% off trend. But if it is, if everything goes well, we still never reacquire that pre-existing trend. And at the same time, they are saying this report is one of hope. Yeah, I think that's really you know when I first saw this uh, this uh, this publication, it really kind of made me mad. I mean, it made me really mad because you're right. Tell the cover, why. the cover image, and then the cover the cover uh, title was coronavirus. Hope for uh, what was it? Hope for reality or reality from hope or whatever it was. Let me look it up here. I mean, it was just um, turning hope into reality. And then underneath in this report was as you pointed out. Uh, the data set which said, look, this, this global economy is not going to recover ever. I mean, we're talking about into the middle 2022s, which is beyond the view of most econometric models. And so as far as they're concerned, even the upside scenario where everything goes good, we might be only about three or two and a half to three percent behind trend, the prior 2019 trend, as opposed to five percent in their baseline case, or if things start to go wrong again, which they went wrong in their, in their view is lack of stimulus then we might be somewhere around 8%. And we're talking about global economic output. So this is a worldwide massive problem. And really, you know, I want to read the quote from the, what the economist said, which was, I mean, I think I thought it, he put it better than I could have put it. Um, because, you know, what he was really saying is that, look, there are, there are massive consequences to this. You can't just erase that. I mean, 2.5% or 3%, 5% doesn't sound like a big deal, but that's great recession levels of of contraction that's really bad stuff five percent of a global economy is going to cause all sorts of problems so here's what their chief economist said despite the huge policy band-aid which is again job saved this the stimulus stuff made it kept it from being even worse even in an upside scenario the pandemic will have damaged the socioeconomic fabric of countries worldwide output is projected to remain around five percent below pre-crisis expectations as you said you know, raising the specter of permanent cost. And here's the most important part. The most vulnerable will continue to suffer disproportionately. Smaller firms and entrepreneurs are more likely to go out of business. Many low-wage earners have lost their jobs and are only, only covered by unemployment insurance at best with poor prospects of finding new jobs soon. Now, that describes a recession, but it doesn't describe – I mean, that's what happens in a recession – but can you imagine a recession that doesn't end? All of those factors that we normally see in a recession that goes on year after year after year after year, well, we, we already can imagine, imagine that because we've experienced that over the last 12 years. And now along comes this new coronavirus or COVID or what they're calling a COVID recession. And it's now going to be on top of the old one, even more uh, destruction in the social fabric. I mean, and then to put that out under the, you know, turning hope into reality. I mean, it's just unbelievable, unbelievable stuff. And, and again, it's misleading and, and uh, purposely so. And that's why you quoted Orwell at the end. I think most people know the Orwell quote from Animal Farm that all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others, courtesy of the pigs who are now in charge of the government. The quote you took from Orwell. Do you, do you have it handy there? If not, I can read it out. Yeah, well, you go ahead and read it. That's fine. Political language is, quote, is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. And so that title, the pure wind, but underneath, 
uh, yeah, completely the opposite. Right. This is political language. It's all of it. Everything we've been talking about so far in this episode, going back to Janet Yellen talking about, oh, I had 10 million jobs created in my tenure. Political language. It's, it's technically true, but as, as Orwell said in the end of this quote, it's to give the appearance of solidity to pure wind. It's meaningless garbage. It's how do we hide the fact that things are really bad. And here in the OECD, Christine Lagarde, Europe, inflation, all this money printing, turning hope into reality. This is really bad stuff. I mean, this is low wage earners going to be affected for, for the foreseeable future with no prospects for job, for, for any job. I mean, when in history has that ever turned out really good? Where's the positive, where's the hope in all of that? The hope they're talking about is that if, if governments spend and central banks print money, it won't be worse. That's not hope. That's not, that's, that's what Orwell said. That's political language that's, that's purposefully designed to mislead. There might be hope in something new, modern monetary theory. And in part three, Jeff is going to respond to a recent appearance of Stephanie Kelton on Macro Voices, but then just more generally the idea of modern monetary theory and what Stephanie Kelton has written. Is this something that can give hope, something new that we're adding to the monetary recipe book? Is there any room for money in modern monetary theory? Stephanie Kelton, perhaps the best known evangelist for MMT, says yes. Jeff Snyder says no. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Uh, let's talk about not Stephanie Kelton right now. Let's first talk about George Knapp, spelled with a K-N and A-double-P. You reference him in an essay that you just posted at Real Clear Markets on December 4th. And the title of that is The Failure of the Printing Press, Birth MMT and the Printing Press. Jeff, who was George Knapp, and what did he write in his 1895 book, The State Theory of Money? Well, George Knapp was the father of what became called chartalism. And charter is a Latin term for token or ticket or some, you know, some kind of uh, piece of paper, or otherwise inherently non-valuable, that conveys some kind of tender. It, con it conveys value because somebody says it, it conveys value and they accept it as such. So chartalism, as, as George Knapp pioneered in, in state theory of money, simply says that because governments have the power of taxation, therefore, it really is government that decides what is and what is not money. And the famous example the chartalists always use is something like seashells. If the federal government demanded you pay them taxes in seashells, you have to pay them taxes in seashells because they have the power and authority to put you in prison if you don't. And so if the government demands payment in whatever form, whatever charter the government decides, that's what money will end up being because the private economy will respond to this government demand and say, well, if the government wants seashells, then we're going to start using seashells as money. And so the, the entire school of thought, the German school of thought has said that money is really, governments are doing themselves a disservice by letting the private sector define what is and what is not money. And of course, up to that point, that had been commodity money in terms of gold. And they said, what the, the charter said was, no, we need to do something about that because the commodity gold standard, that kind of stuff left us, uh, left the, the private economy, especially workers, to the, uh, you know, to the greedy incentives of Eastern bankers or Wall Street, whatever you want to call it, rather than the government who will act in our public good. 
So the government is doing its own disservice, its own dereliction by not being more forceful in the monetary regime and creating and, and, and using what is really what they think is a monopoly on money power. So how do we connect the line to modern monetary theory? Is that what modern monetary theorists believe is that the state is in charge of money? Isn't that how it is right now that the state is in charge of money or is it just in charge of some currency? Well, that's in the core concept and that's why money is in the title of modern monetary theory is that government has a monopoly on money. So in the, U in the United States, my MMT proponents believe that the Treasury Department has a monopoly on U.S. dollar creation. Therefore, the Treasury Department needs only to use it and put it to good use in the public good. That's what's really separating MMT from other economic theories is that, that there should be the, the Treasury Department in particular should not be constrained by some of these old outdated norms. Taking what the Chartalist said and taking it a couple steps further, using the Treasury Department rather than a central bank to, because the Treasury Department not only prints the money, has a monopoly of monetary power, but also spends the government's funds. It spends, it, it's the agency which, which is responsible for economic activity through the government. And so combining those two things together should be able to create what they call these optimal outcomes of growth, inflation, productivity, all of, uh, especially, most of all, full employment. And let me quote here Stephanie Kelton on a recent interview with Eric Townsend on Macro Voices to kind of put a little bit more color to that. She is saying that MMT people believe that the government creates money full stop. They're the only ones that can bring it into existence. So here, let me read a quote, and quote, MMT comes along and says, wait a minute, if we look operationally at how government finance actually works, we learn, we discover that there's really only one way to pay that all government spending. I'm talking federal government spending. So for a government like the US or the UK or Australia or Japan, that there is only one way to pay that all government spending is indeed already and only ever paid for finance with new money creation. There's no other way for it to work. It sounds a little confusing here. Let me, this one rephrases it. The government spends new money into existence and only after it has been spent those dollars into existence are they then available to either pay taxes or buy government bonds. Here's another rephrasing. It's not that we can print money. It's that there is no other way for the government to spend but to create new money as it spends so newly created digital dollars and there's no other way for work. The government creates money. Is that correct, Jeff? What I've, what I've said, is that the MMT thesis? Yeah, the MMT thesis is that the government has a monopoly on money. And I mean, it's just, it's, 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 compa it's, it's completely false. It's so absurd because it flies in the face of, as I wrote in the essay, all historical experience. Their, private banks have created currency, their own currency, even when so, supposedly the government had monopoly on money throughout history. Paper currency in the United States, especially in the national banking era, that was a function of, yes, Government bonds were uh, had to be the currency had to be backed by government bonds, but it was up to the banking system to create currency. In the euro dollar era, 
the government isn't involved at all. We have this massive offshore system, this massive euro dollar system of supposedly U.S. dollars that are entirely bank liabilities and bank assets that have nothing to do with the U.S. government. And when a bank in, you know, say Singapore contracts with a bank in Montreal or the Cayman Islands with down where you are, Emil, what does that have to do with the government? Even though something actually happens in the real world as a consequence of that transaction. So no, the government does not have a monopoly on monetary power as we've seen throughout this entire QE era. Because and when you really look at it, she's not really any different. What, what MMT people are saying is not really that different or even categorically different from what central bankers believe because in reality, MMT is nothing more than neo-Keynesianism taken a step further. It's really the same kind of stuff, the same kind of beliefs. And oh, by the way, they use the same exact econometric models. They, 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 they change the assumptions a little bit on the constraints for interest rates and how interest rates are controlled. But by and large, people, uh, MMT and neo-Keynesianism, what's practiced at central banks, are exactly, are not exactly the same, but they're, they're, they're similar enough that it's what they're missing, what, we, what really unites them is that they don't understand the economy and the monetary system they work in. It seems like there's this disconnect between money and currency. Yes, the federal government can is has a monopoly on legal tender, coins and notes, but our whole show and historical experience suggests money is not the domain of government. Laundromat tokens, that's money. Grocery store coupons, frequent flyer miles, all that stuff is money that the federal government had nothing to do with. And of course, eventually yeah, it's... Go back to George Knapp's original chartalism, right? If, if um, the government says we're going to get paid taxes and seashells, well, that's great. Maybe that will, that will start up a, a secondary quasi-money system where you know, people need to pay taxes and seashells. But that doesn't mean the rest of the economy is going to follow suit, right? It's an assumption that the private economy will just do everything because of taxation. And it's a, it's, a, it's a conceit that unites economists of all stripes that believe that really put too much stock into what government actually can do and how taxation supposedly guides every private, uh, a private, uh, private economy um, uh, participants. Uh, what, 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 you know, it's all about taxation for a lot of economists. This is something Ronald Coase had talked about a long time ago, too, which said that you know, economists have focused so much on tax policy and taxation They've forgotten about how real economies and real economics actually work. And so, you know, when we think about chartalism and seashells and mon government monopoly and all these other things, then it's not that way. The private economy does what's best for the private economy. And yes, it will take care of tax. I mean, it will do whatever the government says in terms of taxation, but that doesn't mean taxation rules everything else, and especially in the monetary system. A moment ago, you said QE in defense of your position. But guess what? In Kelton's interview with uh, Townsend, she used QE in defense of her position. I know this is just red meat I'm throwing to you and the audience who understands this, but let me just read it. Quote, once you apply a little calculus to the quantity theory to the equation of exchange, then you know that inflation is always in everywhere, a monetary phenomenon. Money supply growth rate accelerates. Inflation will accelerate to the same degree. That's what she's quoting as I can. 
the belief system. And now, now she's jumping in and she's saying, well, that's clearly silly and wrong. And you know, we have decades of experience with QE, where people who relied on thinking that expected quantitative easing to drive inflation or possibly hyperinflation. And people believe that MMT will lead to hyperinflation. Jeff, in your article, you say, surprise, no. Right. And I think, you know, they, 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 talk, they talk about Japan, not just in terms of QE and the quote unquote money printing of, of central banking, but also for government spending, too, because that's a major component of MMT, especially as it relates to the jobs program, which is supposed to control inflation and how, you know, the fiscal deficits and the lack of constraint there. What they say is, look at Japan, all the stuff that we heard about, you know, government's going nuts, central banks uh, monetizing debt and going crazy money printing. And th these were all supposed to lead to collapses in the currency, as well as government bond markets, skyrocketing interest rates, hyperinflationary infernos, all these other things. And it didn't happen in Japan. And so what she's saying is this, this equation of exchange nonsense is really nonsense, which we all agree with, but for very different reasons. And the reasons is because she has the same monetary blindness as central bankers do. The reason Japan didn't, go, didn't turn into an inflationary nightmare was because of the deflation, the monetary deflation, the central banks and governments are powerless because they don't know it's there or know what to do about it. They're powerless to end it. So Japan is an example of what MMT could do. It's an example of what MMT would look like. Because when you look at what MMT really is, it is Japan. It's not Weimar Germany, even though Weimar Germany and Rudy von Havenstein is the primary uh, example of following George Knapp's chartalism. Everybody thinks, oh, chartalism, lack of constraints, government's going crazy. That's going to lead to hyperinflation. MMT, I believe, would lead to what you see in Japan today, which I think a lot of MMT proponents would say would agree with, except they would say, oh, we'd be successful in Japan. No, I think MMT and, and what's happened in Japan are almost exactly the same thing. They're close enough that MMT leads to this nothing different, nothing changes, because Japan has all of the key elements together. Maybe they're not arranged in the way that the MMT people would like. They're not, they're not managed in the way MMT people are like. But by and large, the, the big key pieces are in place. You have governments that will spend whatever amount they want to spend. You have central banks that will essentially, quote unquote, monetize that debt. So there's no constraint on deficits. And the key part for MMT is full employment. Now, MMT believes that, you know, there has to be a jobs guarantee program where workers are either working in the private sector. If they get laid off in the private sector, they go to work for the government, doing whatever the government will have them do at a close to at a, at a living wage. And so in Japan, what you see is that, no, maybe they don't have a government jobs guarantee program, but they have a corporate jobs guarantee program because corporations in Japan will never, they don't lay off workers. They, they continue to... Uh, they continue with um, employment levels at the, pretty much the same rates as they do in recession as out recession. So you have full employment. You've got governments going crazy. You've got central banks going crazy. All of these things, lack of constraints. I think MMT and Japan are pretty much the same thing. And the result is deflation, continued deflation, lack of growth, lack of recovery, because MMT makes all the same mistakes as the neo-Keynesians do. They don't pay attention to the monetary system because they believe government and taxation, that's the only monetary system in town. That's right. It would move the monetary power center from the central bank 
to the Ministry of Finance, the Treasury Department, while ignoring the whole complex system around it. That's a good point because another thing, another common element that MMT shares with its neo-Keynesian roots is this closed system belief, which is a closed system belief is essentially that an economy is an island. You know, the Japanese economy is the Japanese economy. It's, it's not part of a global whole. It does some trading. There's, there's some, some monetary, minor monetary flows with Japan and outside Japan or any other place, the United States, for example. But by and large, neo-Keynesians and MMTers believe that an economy is an island. It's, there's, there's very little cross-border linkages. And therefore, the only thing that matters is what, what goes on inside of its borders. And as we know, I mean, Eurodollar University, the whole point here is that that's one of the big things that the economists, neo-Keynesians, whatever you want to call them, that's what they've been missing for half a century, that they have not paid attention to all the stuff that takes place outside the borders, especially in the monetary system. And oh, by the way, that stuff outside the borders in this offshore monetary system are, what was, are largely what has been responsible for both for first globalization, creating a lot of marginal growth in all of these places, and then after August of 2007, taking it away. So the deflation originates in these places that neither MMT nor neo-Keynesians pay any attention to. So again, why would we expect if MMT ever does come to pass, it ever gets used, why would it be any? Why would it end up any differently than it has in Japan? You know, yes, MMT and J- what's going on in Japan are not the same thing, but I think they're close enough, especially in their combined unified ignorance, that it would likely end up in the same way. So MMT to me is not... Weimar Germany, hyperinflation, oh my God, it's the end of the world. It's deflation, continued lack of economic growth, maybe with a different cover, uh, a different kind of artwork on top of it. It's an original and provocative argument, Jeff. I love it. And you've got the articles and essays to back it up. And so for anyone that wants to read more, you can find Jeff at Real Clear Markets. You can find all his work, writing and work at the Alhambra Investments website. He's on Twitter. He's on YouTube. I'm on Twitter and YouTube. And we hope to see you all there. And Jeff, I'll talk to you in a week. Okay, take care, Emil.